Thank you so much, Eli, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I heard you talk about how, you know, you moved out to, to Silicon Valley with not too much. Uh, you know, you had a nice education and everything like that, but we're kind of like sleeping on the floor and had a lot of help from people along your journey to get to where you are today. So I appreciate you kind of paying that forward and, and giving some time to someone like me who's, who's still getting started. Uh, you have a, a really interesting background, um, started a, as a, you know, influential employee at Google um, for a few years, saw them really grow from like 1,500 to 15,000 employees over a few years, and then went and co-founded a company called Mixer Labs. And, and this is just for people who aren't familiar. Uh, that company sold to Twitter, where you then were VP corporate strategy for a couple of years. And again, you saw a company grow uh, this time at, at a smaller scale from like 90 employees to over a thousand, I think, uh, went and co-founded another company, Color Genomics. And then, you know, since then, you've, you've basically been a prolific investor, investing in the likes of like Airbnb uh, and advising these companies as well. Coinbase, Opendoor, Stripe, Square, Pinterest, the list just goes on and on. Um, also, you, you know, you wrote a book called High Growth Handbook, which I read in, in preparation for this podcast. Awesome book for any founder especially those who are kind of, you know, hit their stride on the product market fit and are looking to really become an iconic company. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting perspective for, for scaling from, you know, maybe not zero to one, but from one to like that next level success. Um, so first and foremost, I want to thank you for coming on the show and looking forward to asking you some questions. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for including me today. Great. So where I'd like to start is to ask, you know, based on that breadth of experience, um, you have a pretty unique perspective, I imagine. And that's probably part of why you wrote the book in that you've seen, you know, on the one hand, you've started a couple of companies and grown them from scratch to successes. Then you saw a company like Twitter, 90 to 1,000 in terms of employees. Google kind of picked up where, where Twitter left off. And, you know, it was before in your experience, but it all might weave together a little bit where you saw them grow from like 1,500 to 15,000. You've really seen every stage of company growth and you've seen it in the context of a few different companies. When you think about, you know, investing today, what do you think is your unique, you know, what do you view as your unique perspective and value add when you, when you talk to some of these entrepreneurs and, uh, you know, get involved at the early stage or late stage investing and becoming a part of the board? Yeah, you know, I think a early stage company is pretty radically different from a late stage company. And as an early stage company, your focus is singularly or should singularly be on finding product market fit and finding something that a big enough customer base exists for so that the company can just start growing and eventually sustain itself. And, you know, that's incredibly hard to do. It means um, hiring the first handful of employees, getting the first customers, building the first product, uh, potentially raising money, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's kind of all you really need to focus on. Like as long as you hit product market fit and you don't blow up in terms of a founding team, you tend to make it to the next level. For a late stage company, the set of things that uh, you have to do are pretty radically different. And the complexity of the company goes up dramatically. You're suddenly hiring executives of types that you've never had to hire before. So a general counsel or a CFO or a VP sales. Um, you're changing how you communicate across multiple layers of an organization. You're doing reorgs, you're internationalizing, you're adding multiple products, you're buying other companies, you're doing so many different things. And so the complexity really explodes. And I think I'm one of the, the, the few sort of early stage investors, um, at least as individuals or angels who can then bridge into later stage companies as well. You know, I've started a company myself or I've started two companies myself. Um, so I understand sort of the pains of, of the really early days um, and how to sort of be very scrappy and bootstrappy. And then um, I've also helped scale organizations. And so I understand sort of the later, later stage aspects and, um, you know, can continue to help people later in the life of a company. Right. That makes sense. And so as an early stage focused investor for the most part, but with this kind of late stage scaling and complexity expertise, um, which is sort of rare in that group of, of early stage investors, I know you also have somewhat of a, um, you know, some, some people certainly have the same or a similar perspective, but a lot of people focus in those early stage investments on the founder. And I know you're focused or at least prioritizing um, the product market. And so you, you wrote about that and you know I've heard you speak about it on other podcasts as well. But what I'm curious about really is, um, you know, you had a couple of successful companies that you started 
with the same co-founder. So that's, you know, a team that succeeded twice. It's hard to just peg it to luck at that point. Um, you've also got companies like um, Stripe, which like you invested in, which I think you wrote about or, or spoke about how, um, you know, when you, when you invested, you thought maybe they had like a, a couple billion dollar market opportunity and here we are and it's more likely going to be a couple hundred billion dollar company. Um, and so it's kind of hard from my perspective to judge a market and size a market early, especially if it's like a zero to one type of market in Peter Thiel's words, where the market doesn't really exist yet or hasn't fully formed or kind of taken that next generation. Um, whereas the founders, you know, someone like you and your co-founder, you see the success that you had with Mixer Labs it might be, you know, somewhat reasonable to guess that you could have success in a second venture uh, and maybe a bigger success. And so my question for you is basically, given that from my perspective, and maybe you disagree with this assumption, but it seems that it would be easier to evaluate a founding team than it would be to evaluate the size of a market, especially a brand new one. Um, why do you continue to prioritize product market over the, the founders and the founding team? Yeah, so I, I think the founders and the founding team are crucial, um, but I've seen amazing people just really get crushed by a terrible market. And alternatively, I've seen um, people who just aren't very good do incredibly well in a great market. <laughs> and, you know, they may end up with a $10 billion company instead of the $200 billion company that, that the company would have been in uh, somebody's, somebody else's hands. Um, but fundamentally, they were able to make it to a $10 billion company or a $5 billion company, whatever it may be. Um, you know, I think fundamentally, one of the big things that I underestimated, and I think basically almost everybody else I know underestimated, was if you go back to 2010 or so, uh, which is, you know, I started investing maybe a year or two before that, but really started investing more after Twitter bought my company, and I had some, uh, a little bit more liquidity and the ability to invest a little bit more. Um, everybody thought that the internet was really important, and SaaS was important, and mobile was important, and the cloud was important, and all these things were important. But I think everybody underestimated the sheer scale and the rapidity with which the internet would grow and the degree to which software would end up eating various aspects of the world. And so I, I wrote a blog post about 10 years ago that talked about how rare it was to actually get to a five or $10 million market cap. And at the time it was very rare. There was very few companies that had made it. The biggest companies were in the low hundreds of billions in terms of market cap. And to think that there's a company, there are a set of companies that are ranging now in market cap between one and two trillion just was unthinkable then. Because you had to assume that there'd be so much growth in technology off of already what was a massive scale. You know, Apple's quarter was a hundred billion dollar plus quarter this last quarter. That's a significant portion of um, US GDP. You know, <laughs> if you just add up what that company is gonna do over the course of a year. And so the scale that these things have actually gotten to through the global liquidity of the internet is just unprecedented. And so back when I thought Stripe would be a $5 billion company, that was a huge compliment because at the time it was worth a few hundred million dollars and there were basically no five or $10 billion companies. Everybody kind of tapped out at a billion or 2 billion. And then there was sort of the true outliers that were bigger than that. Um, so I, I think uh, one of my big learnings over the last few years is the sheer scale um, of the internet. And that has all sorts of implications. I think implication one is the companies that would have been small niche hundred million dollar company or excuse me, $10 million revenue companies 10 years ago today can be multi hundred million dollar revenue companies. Cause you can reach so many more people on the internet and so many more people are willing to buy software for different use cases. And so suddenly things that seemed really niche 10 years ago can suddenly be large multi-billion dollar standalone companies. And then the second implication of that is you can have many more companies reach a billion dollars or more in market cap all over the world including outside of technology clusters. And I think that's something that we've actually seen over the last decade or so. And something that's commented on in an, from, from the viewpoint of, oh, well, you can start a tech company anywhere now. And I think that's kind of true, but the reality is I think people will still end up in clusters and we can talk about that later if that's interesting. But I think really this phenomena that you're seeing um, valuable tech companies sort of crop up in onesie twosies and all sorts of cities is driven more by the fact that the markets are just so big that uh, things that normally would have been much smaller just can hit enormous scale. Yeah, I, I knew I was going to get in trouble with this podcast because I have like three hours worth of conversation. We've only got an hour and I knew there was going to be some sidebars that would come up, but I, I want to run one down, um, which is you just mentioned how, you know, people are speculating that 
great technology companies may no longer need to come out of clusters like Silicon Valley. There may be multiple Silicon Valleys like Miami and Austin uh, and, you know, other Denver and other cities, both in the United States and around the world. Uh, but there's, you know, uh, what might be a contrarian view at this point that Silicon Valley is still going to be Silicon Valley. Uh, I know you've expressed as of not super recently, but maybe a few months ago that you thought San Francisco might lose like 10% market share in, in terms of its being a tech hub in the United States. Um, do you still feel that that San Francisco is, you know, alive and well, a beneficial place for people to start companies? And, and how do you, you know, what's your overall perspective on that cluster, you know, sure. versus no cluster future? Yeah, it's interesting because if you look at every industry, there's industry clusters. In other words, there's cities that represent that industries in people's minds and the people who really want to work in that industry go there. And so if you want to go in the movie business, you go to Hollywood. If you want to go into finance, you go to New York. You never, you would never tell somebody, oh, you're starting a hedge fund. You know, you, you should really move to Seattle or, hey, you're, you're, you want to become a movie director. You should really go to Phoenix, you know? <laughs> Uh, that just sounds silly, but if you think about it, you can do anything for any of these other industries digitally at this point too, right? You can write a movie script from anywhere. You can shoot a movie offsite anywhere. Um, you can digitally edit the movie from anywhere. You can add a musical score from anywhere. You know, the same is true for finance. You can raise money for, from LPs from anywhere. You can come up with a trading strategy from anywhere. You can execute those trades from anywhere, but all the hedge funds are in the same place in New York and Connecticut. And so I think the same is true of technology. And there's really strong serendipity effects um, associated with being in a cluster. There's a founder who recently texted me um, for his, his company just hit a billion dollar market cap. And he texted me and he said, oh, you, uh, you probably don't remember this, but you introduced me to, to uh, my co-founder at this event that you hosted 10 years ago. And that's how we met. And now we started a company together and the company's doing really well. And so that sort of offline serendipity and the ability to hire executives who know how to scale and the ability to find their first few customers and all the rest are effects of clusters. Now, if you look right before COVID, what was happening is uh, Silicon Valley had about a half of the US market uh, cap of unicorn companies. And unicorns are of course a lagging indicator because it takes a couple of years to get to a billion dollar or more market cap from those companies. Um, but it was about half of the market cap and then New York and LA were sort of coming up in the US and there really wasn't much in Austin. There was more or less nothing in Miami. And then there was a handful of things in, in Utah, you know, Qualtrics, for example, just went public there and a couple other SaaS companies. And there was an increasing uh, set of companies in Colorado, they were although they were still early. And I think uh, right now during the pandemic, what I'm seeing is a lot of founders that I think of as sort of the next generation of founders are spending a lot of time in LA. Um, some of them are going to Colorado. Um, some of them are spending some time in New York. Um, and then some of the New York people are going to Miami for a couple of weeks during the winter. Um, but I think that when things snap back, I do think it's possible the Bay Area will lose some people uh, to some of these other regions. But I still think it's gonna be the main uh, technology cluster and hub in the US. And maybe it's diminished 20% instead of 10%, or maybe it's 30%, but I don't think it's diminished 50%. And the real question is, um, where do all the great ambitious founders go? It's not about the people who've made it and uh, the people who are already successful, because to some extent, generationally, those people will matter less and less over time with some, some counterexamples. Um, it's really the people who are the next waves of founders. And wherever those people are, that's gonna be the new cluster. Um, so I, I think that's the main thing to keep in mind. I think separate from that, ever since the internet was born, there have been these online groups of people who've gotten to know each other on Twitter or on Reddit or on Discord or, you know, private WhatsApp or Slack or Telegram or Signal groups, right? And so I think that um, that behavior will only accelerate. And there may be these sort of cloud-based clusters of people who will do interesting things together and some of the really early crypto protocols are examples of that. Um, although I think it's striking that, that Coinbase is one of the main um, crypto companies, not you know um, projects, but actual companies uh, up until recently was quite centralized uh, in the Bay Area. And a lot of the up and comers like Anchorage for custody or Bitwise for index funds or, or Tagomi, which was eventually bought by Coinbase, you know, those were all based in either um, the Bay Area or in, uh, 
in New York. So I think those clusters still mattered for that kind of stuff. Right. So let's run with this a little bit more. You mentioned earlier how uh, people drastically underestimated the internet 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you've just mentioned crypto. Uh, I've compared, you know, I wasn't really of age in the 90s to appreciate like the beginnings of the internet. I was basically born with the internet. But um, it strikes me that it's a fair comparison to make uh, to say that crypto now may be at or around where the internet was in like the late 90s or something like that. And, you know, plus or minus five years. On the one hand, do you think that's a fair comparison to make? And do you think crypto may be as underestimated now as the internet was then and and even as recently as 15, 10 years ago? Um, So that's kind of one question. I want to get a couple other points out before um, hearing your response there. One is uh, you talked about the importance of uh, offline serendipity, but then you hinted at the possibility for more online serendipity, whether it's in a network like Twitter, uh, you see what's going on with Reddit and all the GameStop stuff over the, you know, we're recording this in, in the thick of that, who knows where we'll be by the time I release this next week or the week after that or something. Um, but it's interesting to see these online groups coming together. And I'd like to hear, um, you know, you launched this, uh, this for lack of a better word, maybe like a VR uh, platform where it's uh, Pluto.video and you go on and it's like an alternative to Zoom where people can actually, you know, navigate like a, like a video game almost and kind of go meet up and have side conversations in these different locations. And it strikes me that that's a better alternative to kind of create serendipity possibly than something that's, you know, text only like Twitter or audio only like Clubhouse. Um, and I'm curious to hear your thinking behind launching that and putting, you know, a lot of your your focus and attention there. So the first question is really around crypto. And then the second is to talk a little bit about Pluto and the potential for online serendipity. Sure. So um, on the crypto side, I think uh, we need to separate out super interesting technology from use cases that will actually use that technology. And I am incredibly bullish on crypto and a lot of the um, important things that are still coming. Um, and, you know, I'm an investor in a variety of protocols, as well as a number of the companies I mentioned, including Coinbase and Anchorage and Bitwise and Tagomi, and then protocols like um, Celo and, and Coda and Filecoin and a few other things like that. Um, so I've been bullish on crypto for a while. Um, I do think, though, that you have to ask what, where is a cryptographically secured permissionless programmatic system actually needed, you know? And if you look at the blockchain, it's effectively kind of a crappy database, right? When all is said and done, but it has all sorts of other aspects um, that allow you to interact with it programmatically and um, to basically form different types of um, contracts which are executed algorithmically and that are cryptographically secured. And so that means that if you're building a game, you could always do it on top of that system, especially if you have some sort of financial incentives baked into it, but you could also just build it as a normal website and and web product and that should work fine or mobile app or whatever it may be. And so when I think about what are the main use cases for crypto that make sense, um, first and foremost, it's things related to finance and money. And that's why I think, you know, Bitcoin really is an amazing um, potential store of value and in some sense a generational replacement uh, for gold or that type of store of value and that sort of mindset around store of value. I think DeFi and the things that are happening there are, are incredibly interesting and you know, being able to programmatically execute complex financial trades um, to derivatize, collateralize, take loans, all the things that DeFi is really promising, I think will be a major use case. Um, and so I think one whole area is around finance. And I think that's really the core of what crypto works very well for um, at, at least certain aspects of it today. Um, separate from that, I think an interesting area is NFTs and collectibles and things like that, because you do have these uh, digital artifacts and digital pieces of art and digital collectibles that again are cryptographically secured and uniquely available to um, the user who owns them in different ways. Um, and you can track chain of custody and you can do all sorts of really interesting things with them. So I think that's, that's an interesting area. It's obviously a much smaller part of the economy and people have always talked about the ability to like mix and match um, NFTs and avatars and tools and other things across games or other ways that you could start having that impinge on other aspects of the economy. Um, and then lastly, I think 
the, um, you know, deplatforming of a variety of, you know, right-wing outlets, um, whether you agree with the outlets or not, suggests that crypto may end up being a place um, also for social products or social content over time. And that may or may not be a, a future that exists. There may be a big use case for it or there may not be. And I think only the future will tell on that one. Um, but I do think that those are sort of the three use cases where the characteristics of crypto uh, are actually really valuable from a product and end user perspective. There's lots and lots of places where people talk about crypto that's just unclear to me are actually necessary, you know, in terms of someday Airbnb will be on the blockchain and you're like, well, why, you know, <laughs> um, either way, you're going to have to end up with something a little bit centralized in terms of how users access that service. Uh, and so, it, you know, there, there's just a lot of these use cases that people talk about that I just, I just don't quite understand why, why it would be a superior product on the blockchain other than you do it with very low fees, but you could also do that off the blockchain, right? It's not, it's not a necessary aspect of, of implementing um, the features that people claim crypto helps with. So that's kind of my quick take on it. So now talking about Pluto a little bit and maybe opportunities for, uh, you know, some, some digital serendipity in the future. Was that a part of your thinking? And obviously, you know, you, you have, uh, your time is super valuable and you're, you're pretty busy investing in, in a number of things and involved with a number of companies. What made this something that you wanted to, uh, you know, commit a bunch of your time to, to launching? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, basically, like everybody during um, the pandemic, I started getting kind of sick of Zoom happy hours and um, Zoom meetups and Zoom birthday parties. You know, you'd have 30 people on the line and you would, um, you'd get kind of uh, uh, tired of just waiting for your turn to speak for two minutes and then hear everybody else talk for 40 minutes. And it wasn't like a real social interaction. It was almost like a broadcast event. And so I started looking around uh, the web in terms of what are products that allow you to have real serendipity. And there's a bunch of different things that people are experimenting with. I mean, you mentioned Clubhouse. Um, there's things like uh, Gather and Grally and Sonar. Yorb was doing all sorts of really interesting things in terms of like these, these cube avatars. Um, there's all sorts of things being done in terms of decaying sound um, like Rambly or you know, sound decaying with distance in a, in a physical plane. Um, and so, um, you know, I thought there was a lot of really interesting social experimentation. And so this was really initially just an attempt to create a space for me and my friends to hang out and have interactions. And I just started inviting bigger and bigger groups in and, you know, the experience continued to scale, um, with large, large groups of people. And so I just thought it'd be fun to put it out there and see how people reacted to it and, and how people interacted with it. So at this point, it's not you know, a giant official thing yet. It's just more of a, of an experiment and side project and an attempt to see, you know, is this something that's really compelling to people or not? Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's very interesting. And I think that there's a lot to be improved from zoom. Obviously it was, it was nice that we had something like zoom to enable people to continue working during this time, but uh, it seems that there should be some better things coming in and maybe Pluto's is a part of that. Um, let's get back to the book a little bit and some of the things that I took away from there. Uh, one of the important aspects you, you mentioned and highlighted was that um, when a company is just starting out, it can often be overlooked that, you know, when they're growing at an extremely fast pace, even if the numbers themselves are very small, especially if it's organic growth. Um, and it kind of, I connected it to something I was recently reading uh, Bezos shareholder letters to Amazon. And he, he talks about, um, you know, how they've kind of created this nurturing culture where not just, you know, obviously the initial books business took off very quickly, but he talks about the importance of the same kind of recognition that you talked about uh, for, you know, the next product when Amazon's already like a $10 billion company and you have a product that scales really quickly from zero to 10 million. Um, it's easy to kind of overlook that because it's growing the company by like, you know, 0.01% or whatever it is. Um, but at Amazon, they like, even like the leaders of the biggest products in the company make sure to like get in touch with that team and be like, great job. Like keep going. How can I help? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think, you know, and it, like, what's the importance of actually, you know, if you, if you have a product that's growing like that, theoretically, it's kind of working already. What's the importance of really, you know, acknowledging that and, and focusing on that? And what can you then do to kind of, 
juice it to the max and like get the most out of this product that seems to be resonating early, whether it's like the first product of the business or a later product down the line? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think there's maybe two or three aspects to that. Uh, one is what are the directions that the product can grow so that it um, either works even better for the set of users that it has or can expand into adjacent use cases or areas. And then uh, second to that is what's the distribution and mode that you wanna focus on relative to getting it to as many people as possible simultaneously. And so if you look at Uber as an example, you know, it really started off as sort of this higher end black car product. And then they started effectively expanding the footprint of the type of users who could interact with it. So they added UberX and then they added all the various forms of Uber. Um, and so that dramatically both lowered the price point and it also meant way more people could engage uh, with the service either as a driver or as a, as a customer. Um, and then they started focusing on the geographic expansion. And then a few years later, they started building products on top of that that utilized that infrastructure and network of cars they had in terms of things like Uber Eats and delivery and other things like that. And so I think that's a really great example of basically saying, how do we grow faster in each city that we enter? And what's the playbook for that and the distribution approach to that? And then relatedly, what's the product footprint that we have so that we can maximize the number of people who find this to be a compelling service? And then on top of that, they started iterating on other things like, can you schedule rides at certain times? If you need to ride at the airport, so you're sure the car will show up, you know, all sorts of things like that around optimizing the product. Yeah. So an, another interesting aspect from the book that that came up was in your interview with uh, with Patrick Carlson. And I bring this up after the last question, because again, I, I kind of relate it back to Amazon. Patrick talks about the importance of having these sort of founding documents with some like key principles that should ideally remain the same over time. But he and, and you and, and the book and other interviews um, talk about the importance of a company evolving in, in basically every way. So like, you know, from the organizational structure to uh, mm. the culture itself and to the people itself and the leadership. Uh, but it seems that there's some importance, at least from Patrick's perspective. And then from Bezos perspective, he, every shareholder letter since 97, he's attached at the end, his letter from 97, which talks about like the importance of uh, taking a long-term view and how a lot of the principles from day one uh, have kind of withstood within Amazon and Patrick kind of talks about the same. So how do you kind of navigate this balance where like you have these core principles from the onset that um, ideally should kind of remain the same over time, but then almost everything else it seems goes by the wayside as the company evolves and, and the culture itself, which theoretically is kind of built around these values, but the culture does change as well. So like mm -hmm. how it, it seems somewhat paradoxical to me, would love to hear you kind of elaborate a bit on, on that. Sure. It kind of depends on what those principles are. If the principle is delight your customers, then that feels like something that's never gonna change. But I think that the, the challenge is often the principles that people have early, a subset of them make a lot of sense and should stick forever. You know, you should be ethical and honor your word and things like that. And then there's some things that may be viewed as sort of these unchanging principles that turn out to be not really necessary or maybe wrong later in the life of the company. Um, and so it's interesting because uh, to your point on culture, a lot of people think that a company's culture um, should be static and it shouldn't change, but every single other aspect of your company changes, your product changes, your organization changes, your customer set changes, uh, you know, how you sell to your customers may change. And your culture should actually change too. And the key thing is there's probably a set of things that are core that you wanna keep forever. Um, like, you know, make sure that your customers are delighted or whatever it may be. Um, and then there's a bunch of stuff that, you know, probably made sense when you were 10 people that may not make sense when you're a thousand people. And I think people need to, uh, people and companies need to give their, themselves permission to make those changes over time and to say our, our, our culture is gonna evolve just like everything else and just like our product it's kind of the same product it was at the beginning, but it's, it's changed a lot and a lot of things have been added and subtracted from it over time. The same is gonna be true of the culture. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the evolution of the founder or the founding team itself. Um, you, you've highlighted how that's extremely important. The job of the CEO very much changes from in the beginning where it's kind of you know the task of finding product market fit and maybe thinking of, of what's the next product or two to later stages where there's, kind of a laundry list of pretty different items um, that the CEO is tasked with. Who are some CEOs that you've observed either as an investor or during your time with 
you know, Google with Twitter um, that you've seen kind of master this evolution and what were elements from, you know, whichever story you might choose to tell that were like most surprising, like, wow, I really didn't expect this executive to be able to change that aspect of kind of who they are and what they do. And they really just kind of crushed it. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think there's a lot of people that uh, have evolved pretty dramatically over time. And I think part of it isn't just the, um, the fact that they've lived through more and they've seen more and, you know, the organization has changed and they've learned from people they've hired. But in some cases too, you start off with very young founders and they just mature as people and they grow into adults over the life of the company, right? If, if you drop out of school and you start a company when you're 19 or 20, uh, and you, you know, the first decade that you build it, you're basically going from being a 19 or 20 year old to, to reaching your early thirties. And that's a massive life change. And there's a lot of maturity and shifts that come with that. And so I almost view that as something that's under discussed is, you know, sometimes, um, CEOs of very, uh, of companies with younger teams, um, are super mature and buttoned up from day one, but sometimes they're immature and you know what, that's age appropriate, you know? <laughs> And sometimes you kind of want to cut them some slack due to the fact that they're in this really unaccepted, unexpected, exceptional situation and they're dealing with it the best they can. And sometimes you should cut them slack and sometimes you shouldn't and just tell them, look, I think this thing that you're doing just doesn't make sense and it's wrong in these two ways. And, you know, the best founders will listen to that. So, um, I, you know, I really do think that one of the interesting aspects of being an investor with companies that evolve over these long periods of time is just seeing the people really grow and evolve and, you know, in some cases in incredibly impressive ways. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know if this is a, uh, a fair parallel or comparison at all, but I always look at like, you see a lot of child stars in like Hollywood and, and TV and everything that kind of have a tough time in adulthood after being like so famous growing up. And it's obviously a little bit different, maybe with the a tech founder, but there is an aspect of like actually growing personally and like having different life milestones along the way and the challenges of navigating it. I always think it's like tremendously hard. Like I, I, I'm not at all surprised and give credit to the, uh, the child stars who kind of make it through unfazed and like can resemble some semblance of, of normalcy um, just because of how odd it must be to be someone like, you know, uh, on the entertainment side, like Shia LaBeouf or, Selena Gomez or something like that. And then on the founder side, like a Zuckerberg or a Dorsey or whoever it might be, um, Patrick Collison, it's just very, uh, I can imagine it's extremely challenging. So credit to, uh, to those who are able to evolve for sure. Um, you mentioned how, you know, also a couple of key tasks of the CEO, um, especially early on, but also later are managing the board and selecting great board members. Um, a lot of the reasoning is that they can kind of be a hindrance in some ways, um, but also they can be a huge advantage. And so I'm curious, what do you think that, um, you know, you establish a great board and ideally, I think from your perspective, like a smaller board, at least in the early days, like three to seven people, maybe five, um, that, you know, can be really helpful and no one's kind of getting in the way and they give so long as the CEO or founder is kind of doing a good job, they just give them the green light to kind of move forward and help where they can. Uh, you talked earlier about how like a market itself can make a great company, um, even with a kind of like an average or a decent team. Can a great board actually make a company if you have kind of a decent founder or a decent CEO who was either lucky or good at assembling an amazing board and then uh, is able to turn to them to kind of guide the company to a great place? You know, I've seen boards sometimes blow up companies or a really bad investor or um, really bad advisor sometimes can really hurt a company. I don't know very many circumstances where I've seen an investor or a board member save a company. It definitely happens. Um, and sometimes it'll happen through just being able to help pull together a round or fundraise that would have fallen apart otherwise or use their reputation in a way to help land a key deal or do something else. But you know what, 99% of the time, it's really up to the founders to drive the success of the company. And boards can be very helpful and they can be a literal sounding board and they can help manage emotional states for the executive team or the CEO. Um, but I think most of the case, most of the time you really shouldn't count on your board or your investors as being the, um, uh, 
sort of do sex machina to like help save the company, you know? Like, I just think um, it's, it's really usually the, the founder who drives success. And, and again, there, there are examples where I've seen where a key investor or angel or board member has really helped, um, but not in a way that's necessarily as irreplaceable as like a great founder. Right, so in, in addition to kind of building the board, uh, one of the key functions of a, of a CEO, again, from early days to later, I think one of the things that carries over is the importance of building a great executive team around yourself. And uh, you talk about how the, you know, when you, when you have a, a great executive come on board, maybe like your first great experienced executive, it's almost like magic, like things just start getting done. And mm -hmm. it's like, I think you quote, like said it, it was like a wondrous experience. Um, it sounds almost like what you kind of hear people talk about when they kind of discover product market fit. So uh, I'll take, you know, a, a stab at calling it somewhat of like a um, executive company fit. How mm -hmm. do you kind of in advance of actually seeing it play out just like product market fit? Um, how do you like in the interview stage start mm -hmm. to, and I, I know this is, you know, a deep question you could probably, you, you did write basically a book about uh, at least a chapter or so, but mm -hmm. how do you summarize like how to establish um, or, you know, have an idea that you have that fit in like the interview stage pre-hire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I'd like to go back to the board thing. Cause I think there's something I kind of skipped over uh, that I should have mentioned, but, um, on the executive side, uh, you know, I think there's three or four things that you really want to look for in an executive and, you know, number one is fun functional excellence. Do they actually know how to drive their function or at least one core function that they're responsible well, uh, for well. Um, second, you want to make sure that they um, get along well with the rest of the executive team. They put the company first over their own agenda, they're collaborative, et cetera. Um, third, that they can recruit and retain and grow talent. So can your CFO bring on great finance professionals, et cetera? Um, I think that's really crucial. And uh, lastly, can they think really strategically? And I think almost every function can, can be a strategic function if done well. And at most companies, there's only one or two functions that truly act strategically and Often that's more than enough. Um, so you're kind of looking for that mix of skills and then just how do they fit relative to the, the culture of the organization and, um, you know, uh, and by culture, I mean, you know, the unwritten rules that govern the way that the, the company functions. I don't mean anything uh, kind of more than that. Um, and, you know, when all is said and done, um, I think the mistake a lot of uh, founders make early is that they wait once a company has product market fit, they wait too long to bring on great executives. And even if they know that they should, and it's coming and all the rest, they still kind of stall out the first time. And I think it's pretty striking that you see a lot of second time founders when they start a company, they have, you know, three VPs in the first 20 people. And you're like, why would you ever have such a top heavy team? And the reality is they're doing that because they understand delegation and they understand they don't need to do everything themselves and that there's way more leverage in having other people who are better than you doing certain things. Um, and I think you kind of have to learn that the hard way the first time, because the first time you tend to resist it and you want everything to be super flat and non-hierarchical and all the rest of it. Um, and I think it's great to have flat organizations. It's just having people who know what they're doing helps a lot too. Um, on the board side, I do think that, um, one thing I should mention is there are some board members who are incredibly helpful and who are exceptional. And to some extent, when looking for a great board member, you want to find somebody who, you know, optimally, I think Reed Hoffman puts it as somebody you'd like to, you know, start a company with, you know, or you would have started a company with, you know, somebody of that caliber of excellence. And it's usually somebody that you wouldn't be able to hire into the company otherwise. And so you bring them on as a board member and as a partner to what you're doing. Um, now, obviously, because venture capital is a bundled product where you um, have a bundle of governance, advice, and money, you don't necessarily have as much say in terms of the, the skill set and the background and the expertise of your board member, depending on the firm you raise from or how desperate you are to take money. Um, and so that impacts what your board composition is. But the sort of platonic ideal of a board is, you know, a high-functioning group of people who are there um, to support um, and help the CEO and their team and the company in different ways. Um, and who can act as a strategic sounding board, help with capital raises, help with closing executives and candidates, help with specific issues that the company may face. Um, uh, but not every company ever hits that, that ideal situation. Yeah, so last thing on, on kind of the CEO role, 
um you and you kind of hinted at this earlier with uh talking about like you know handing off certain responsibilities to uh to your great executives but you talk about how important time management is for the ceo that if you kind of don't do that first and foremost with yourself then you're probably going to burn out that's probably going to hurt you that's probably going to hurt your company so there's a bunch of strategies you called out like delegating and uh, auditing your auditing your calendar every so often saying no to a lot of things prioritizing various activities and making sure to kind of fit in the things that give you energy whether that's like spending time with family or you know taking your dog for a walk doing things that you love whatever it might be um what are some of the strategies that have either you know whether it's something that i just named or something else um but kind of specific strategies that you've either been able to employ successfully yourself or seen executives employ very successfully kind of throughout your your time you know with these companies or, or as an investor yeah i think the biggest transition um that I've seen either first-time executives or first-time CEOs have to go through is number one, um, really trying to figure out what is the set of meetings and work that you really need to, be, need to be part of and what are the things that you truly can just hand off and delegate. And you'll often see people continue to go to meetings well after their sort of expiration date in terms of the importance of them being there. Uh, and if they get out of those meetings, it actually frees up an enormous amount of time. And part of that sometimes means actually creating a separate meeting, which actually aggregates all the little mini decisions that would have been spread across the five other things that you normally would have attended and just consolidating it into a half hour. Um, and so that's why you end up with product reviews or engineering reviews or design reviews or things like that. You're basically centralizing all the decisions into a small slot of time instead of spreading them throughout the week. Um, so that's one big shift. The other big shift is uh, finding um, effectively lieutenants to whom you can delegate big chunks of your respective org or function and um, really figuring out how to effectively delegate to those individuals. And so it's really building up that team. Now, before you have product market fit, you can't do that because you just can't afford all those people. And they may also not want to join because they don't want to join something that's super high risk. Uh, when they have lots of opportunities at things that are clearly working. And so at the earliest stages of a company, unless you have had a lot of success before and can attract those types of people early, um, you, you just can't do that. But then once you have product market fit, you need to start uh, bringing those people on board as quickly as you can. And that's usually where you end up with a lag because you effectively train yourself to do everything yourself or to control everything yourself. And it's sort of a lesson that's hard to unwind. In other words, the thing that made you successful may now be the thing that's going to hurt you. And you also see that with other types of time management, right? Early in your career, you end up saying yes to a lot of things because the cost to yourself in some sense is low or perceived to be low, but also you just don't have that many opportunities. So any opportunity that comes your way in some sense is a good one, right? On a relative basis. And so some very successful people say yes to a lot of things and it may be yes along a focused set of, of areas, right? Yes, I'll help you with this open source project or yes, I'll help you with this developer tool or whatever it is, maybe a thing that you say yes to a lot but you don't necessarily say yes to other stuff, right? Um, but then later in your career saying yes to everything really backfires because suddenly uh, you don't have a lot of time and there's more and more people who want little pieces of your time and you need to learn how to focus it. And the same thing is true in terms of delegation and building out a team as a company starts working. It's, it's more or less the same pattern. The things that made you successful may now actually hurt you. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think that's, uh, I mean, it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about already. And maybe it's like almost too early for me to be thinking about preserving and, and reserving my time, uh, you know, at, at my age and without being like extremely busy. But I think it's um, definitely a, a valuable exercise to just be very mindful about where you invest your time because it's, in my opinion, even more valuable than, than where you invest your money. Um, I want to, to close. By the way, sorry to interrupt, but I, I do, I do agree with you. And I, I, I do think that no matter where you are in your career, that's a really valuable thing. I guess my point is um, the opportunity cost of certain things are lower really in your career. And therefore you end up saying yes to more things naturally. And that often is what creates that ability to bootstrap yourself into success, right? You um, help out three friends with different things that, uh, you know, with their different side projects and one of them turns into a major company or whatever it is, right? And so you, you just have um, more capability to sort of um, 
or not capability, your, your relative cost of helping may be lower in some ways, but to your point, you wanna keep it within a focus sphere or domain, you wanna focus on building versus talking, you know, <laughs> like I think there's other characteristics of, um, uh, of participating in, in your community early. Um, uh, and to your point, I think you wanna keep some of those activities pretty focused. Yeah. And I think for me, I think about like, what's, what are some high leverage activities that are things that I really enjoy to do because those actually add to my energy rather than take away energy. So like being on with you right now, uh, not only am I learning a ton and did I learn a ton in preparing, but I'm spending an hour with you and I'm taking an hour of your time, which again, I really appreciate, but then it's going to be listened to by thousands of people for thousands of hours, uh, you know, in the next week or two, let alone for the eternity of time that people can go and listen to this podcast. So I think it's a super useful thing to be do- like, I'm learning and I'm doing something that I'm really enjoying. Other people are hopefully getting some utility and learning from it. And it's just like, what could I better do with an hour and, you know, the time that I spent in advance preparing and everything like that. So mm-hmm. um, trying to be conscious in that way is definitely something I think about and encourage people to go read the book as uh, you know, it's kind of going to be the last question I ask. Um, in that realm before closing out with one last question and giving you the last word. So, and again, the book is called the uh, high growth handbook and I'm looking forward to rereading it one day myself, hopefully when I'm kind of at a, at a more appropriate time. But uh, the last question I want to ask is you've have this interest in longevity and like my first guest on the podcast was Aubrey de Grey. It's something where, um, you know, I'm interested in crypto and city building and some other things, but uh, longevity, I think may be, the most important problem kind of of my generation, if we can do anything meaningful to slow and or reverse aging and live meaningfully longer, healthier lives. Um, I know that you helped, uh, you know, support Laura Deming with the age one uh, work that she was doing. I actually was fortunate to attend the first meeting that they did. It's crazy. It was like 20, 25, 30 people, maybe Uh, Patrick Collison was actually the speaker. And so she was asking some questions pretty sure I was the only investment banker in the room at the time, but it, I was just lucky to be there. And it was one of those things where it was like, this is really an, an awesome place to be. Um, what got you interested in, in longevity in the first place? And what do you kind of foresee? Obviously hard to predict, but over kind of whatever time horizon you think is relevant, what do you see unfolding? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I first got interested in aging and longevity in high school. And um, it was originally a problem that I thought I was going to work on. And so I went and, um, you know, I got degrees in math and molecular biology, and then I got a PhD in biology. And for my PhD, I actually worked on the biology of aging. And in particular, I worked on a pathway that is at the intersection of um, aging, cancer, and insulin. It's uh, what's known as a DAF pathway, which is sort of a canonical anti-aging or longevity pathway in C. elegans, which are these little worms that are studied in the lab. And I also did some uh, mouse and sort of human tissue culture work around it. Um, and uh, then I went into tech and um, I continued to track the field over time. And it became pretty clear that there actually wasn't very much science being translated into actual drugs and medicines uh, related to longevity. And so even though the corpus of knowledge around aging kept growing, nobody was doing anything with it. And so um, to your point, I I got involved a little bit with what Laura was doing and just tried to help out in small ways. Although she really, you know, uh, is amazing in her own right and and, uh, doesn't really need the help. And then uh, I seeded this company called BioAge, um, which is run by a former Stanford postdoc in Asian biology, who's just a fantastic founder. Um, She's actually now in licensed uh, two drugs from um, large pharmaceutical companies and will be running uh, clinical trials for anti-aging applications uh, this year. And then I also helped get a company called Spring Discovery up and running, um, which is run by Ben Caymans, who's also very good. And, um, you know, they, they used machine vision-based approaches to create uh, aging-related assays. And they similarly now have a few candidate molecules for as real anti-aging drugs. And so my focus um, has really been on trying to help translate uh, hard science into actual drugs um, because I think enough of the science has been done that translation is really something people can focus on instead of having to create yet another scientific institution for it. 
Um, so that's been my, my emphasis and focus um, on the aging side. And any, any predictions for the future? Um, I mean, there are some uh, drugs that exist on the market today that are FDA approved drugs that impinge on um, aging anywhere between say five to 20% of lifespan. Uh, metformin is one, rapamycin is another that seems to affect aging in multiple organisms, although it does have some side effects in people in terms of being an immune suppressant, which, is what's the, which was its original use. Um, but in mice, for example, it extends lifespan between 10 and 30%, depending on the, the sex of the mouse um, and the experiment that's being run. Uh, so, you know, I think it's really just um, bringing some of these things to market and probably the way you bring them to market is as a narrowly focused indication or use case so you can get FDA approval and then you can kind of expand from there in terms of multiple indications and then eventually aging. So I think the path from a regulatory perspective is pretty clear. So I'd be pretty surprised if in the next 10 years, we wouldn't have one or more drugs that start off with a specific aging indication that could then broaden into other stuff. Um, I still think there's an enormous amount of, of, of stuff to be done in this field. And so um, I still think there's room for more companies to do really interesting things. And the biggest challenge, frankly, for anti-aging companies is the earlier rounds tend to be really easy to raise. And then the later stage rounds for companies start to get tougher. And I think in part, that's because last year, um, Restore Bio and um, Unity both had sort of, uh, they're both public market companies in aging and they both kind of had um, bad results in their clinical trials. And so that kind of hurt the field for a year or two. And now and, you know, in the last week, I've actually gotten two pings from anti-aging companies when, you know, there'd been a couple months without. So it feels to me like uh, that area is starting to get a lot more interest again. And there's, there's more people starting to work in it again and things like that. There's almost like a gap of this year where things, at least to me, seem to have slowed down a little bit because of these public market companies not doing very well. Right. Well, hopefully there uh, continues to be some more momentum and maybe this is just a blip on a larger um, you know, uh, acceleration towards some of these anti-aging technology that I hope a lot more attention and funding goes that direction. And uh, certainly ap appreciate your being one of the earliest people to kind of push it forward. Um, thank you so much again for, for taking the time. I know we're, we're up on time, but uh, appreciate you, you coming on and answering some questions. I think this is probably one of the most uh, insight rich conversations I've, I've had on the podcast thus far. So I uh, appreciate your time and um, I, I guess last word anywhere that, uh, people can go follow you. And, and you know, I, I told people that they can go read the book, but anywhere you want people to, uh, kind of stay in the loop on, on what you're working on and some of the things that you're doing. Oh, sure. Yeah. No. Um, so people can, uh, follow me on Twitter at a Gill, or they can just go to a And, uh, you know, that links to my blog and the book and a few other things, but, uh, thanks so much for including me today. I really appreciate the conversation and um the the discussion